0: emotions were just all over the place and I um I started to see a new therapist and I remember like our first session she was like holy shit you're like you're in crisis this is like we (laughs) we have to like unpack a lot of stuff but I promise if you're if you're honest with me and if you if you if you do the work you can get past it and it and it all started with I had to retell everything that happened, losing Lena. And she just like stared at me, didn't flinch like it was shocking or like my misfortune would rub off on her. And that was was the start of it. And there was, you know, there were sessions every week and every week there would be like a box of tissues in her office and I would just unload and in between sessions, you know? there would, there would be a lot of journaling and um, the anger was causing a lot of distance in my relationship with my husband, Hal, you know, because I guess I, I was feeling stuck. I didn't know if he was stuck and I just you know, um, I don't even know if there's like a name for it, but it was just, I was feeling like distance, distanced from him and just kind of stopped talking, you know. um, My therapist had to like, she was like, kind of getting me to talk to him more about it. And it turned out like we had a lot of the same feelings. We just weren't doing like a great job um, communicating. And then we did a lot of work with just being able to stay in the moment rather than thinking 20 steps ahead what if what if what if right
1: welcome to the Growth and Thriving Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jerry Sunshine Novak, and this is the podcast where we celebrate the stories of those who have overcome great adversity and examine the tools and techniques by which people grow and learn to thrive. With me today is a a good longtime friend of mine, one of my longest standing friends in the world. Um, She has an MBA in marketing and works as a marketing professional. She is a um, spouse in a very long and successful marriage, which is not such a usual thing anymore, a mom to twins, and a member of our online community here at the um, Growth and Thriving After Trauma, and and so uh, this is Jen Rappaport from New Jersey, and um, Jen and I go way back. We were partners, well, her (laughs) her husband Hal and I were partners in crime for in numerous road trips, 80s hair metal concerts, and haunted attractions back in the yes. day. Yes. Welcome, Jen. Thank you for coming <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs>
0: oh, hi, Jerry. Thank you for having me. Um, this is such a departure considering where our friendship started out about a <laughs> little less than 20 years ago. Yeah. So it was before you had your master's or your PhD, before I had my master's when it was just all about having fun.
1: Yes. Going nobody to concerts,
0: taking trips.
1: Yeah. Nobody had children. And nobody. you and Hal were married, but I wasn't. And yeah.
0: We were that whole like married, no kids thing, which is, yeah. you know, it's, uh, you can pretty much do whatever you want when you want. So, and we um, did. but <laughs> we did. And so many concerts. So, so many concerts.
1: Yeah. Many, we drove several hours for.
0: <laughs> Two hours to see Whitesnake. Um, <laughs>
1: Four right? to see Twisted Sister when they were playing under a pseudonym. We didn't even know it was going to be them or not.
0: That brother. And you know what? It's a long trip to Long Island. I'm just okay. going to say Where that. Are. And there are no rest stops. <laughs> I'm going to put that out there, too. <laughs>
1: So Jen, tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about, um, you know, your life and your, particularly your interest in the online community outside of just knowing me and, um, and let's, let's jump in and, and give folks something to listen to besides inside stories.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, well, I grew up in suburban New Jersey, but I was born in New York and, um, a very traditional Italian background so um, if you're upset if you're angry if something bad happens you don't talk about it mm-hmm. so like from a very early age like I learned to cart like compartmentalize and just put feelings in a box and put them on a shelf and move forward um, but I have a great relationship with my parents now um, um let's see. So, you know, typical, like went to college, um, wasn't sure what I was going to do with my life and, you know, got married very young. But, you know, my husband, Hal and I, like we've been together for a really long time and we were married for a really long time before we even decided to have children. So when we finally decided to have children, it was like, A lot of our peers already had 10 year olds, 11 year olds. So um, how can I say, I guess we just wanted to experience a lot of life and do some traveling and really have a lot of fun before we had kids. Um, And we weren't even sure if we wanted to have kids, but once we decided, um, you know, we quickly learned that just because you're ready to have kids doesn't mean that um, you can have them right easily without assistance so um a year of trying and um you know visits to the doctor and a lot of money invested with the doctor we finally got pregnant with our daughter lena and like it was just on the heels of like an amazing trip to to europe and like i was like the most amazing pregnancy i never got sick it was like a model pregnancy and and i even remember like this one day very clearly i was walking around my office and a coworker that i had a really great relationship with like my belly was all the way out to there and like he felt my belly and he's like man like things are happening for you and he was like happy for me i could feel it i remember going back to my desk and feeling feeling her kick and i remember thinking oh my god my life is perfect. Like my house needs a ton of repairs, the house that we just bought, like, you know, other aspects of my life aren't perfect, but I just feel like the stars are aligning and everything is perfect. And I am so happy. Um, and then, you know, later on that night, uh, I stopped feeling her kick. And I was about like 34 weeks along. Um, So like she was just about like almost there. I had already had a baby shower like and stopped kicking. Go to the hospital, fast forward, no more heartbeat. She's dead. And um, so they had to start inducing me so I would go into labor. so it was like a forty eight hours of being in the hospital with my husband and my parents, basically waiting to birth, um, you know, a child that wasn't living. Yeah. and i I remember thinking, oh, you know, it was something that I did wrong. What like I ate pop tarts this morning. Oh, my God, I never eat pop tarts. Maybe that did it. Or, you know, maybe it was because I had the audacity to think that my life was perfect and the universe was coming down on me because like I dared actually think that, that things were, were going well, you know, and, um, you know, so after I birthed her and, you know, we all took turns holding her, it was kind of like an unspoken thing. Like, we're never going to speak of this again. So, um, my coworkers, the leadership that, at the company that I worked for, they were like very supportive. They're like, you know, tell us what you need. And I'm like, when I come back to work, I don't want anyone to say anything to me. They're not to mention it. No one's to try and hug me. No one's trying, like, I'm just going to put it in a box and business as usual. That's like what I needed to function. Um, you know, and just like, kind of taking a step back after I came home from the hospital, like there was hormones, like you know, the yeah. the hormone thing going on, but also just grief sure. and trauma because like preparing 48 hours to deliver a, a dead child, it's like it, no one really said it to me at the time, but it's it's a traumatic, the whole thing was just a traumatic experience. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, birthing a child in the best of circumstances can be traumatic.
0: Right, right. Um, And I, you know, no one, no one close to me really, and myself, we didn't have the tools to really deal with this. And, um, you know, my poor husband, he was trying to deal with this on his own. And then he had like a, like a completely despondent wife. And all I did was basically like lay in bed and take Xanax. So I could just try and sleep through the entire thing. And he just didn't know what to do with me. So my parents took me to their house (laughs) and kept me for a week or two, just to, to keep an eye on me. And it was, the focus was just like, let's start cooking. Let's start baking. Let's just put it behind us. Right. And I found a therapist, and I I started to see a therapist, and and I'm not saying that she's like you know her her method was right or wrong or good or bad. Like in hindsight, it just wasn't a great fit for me. Mm-hmm. Um, she kept calling what happened a miscarriage, and just to be perfectly clear, a stillbirth is is, and I'm not saying that a miscarriage isn't traumatic. but a stillbirth is a little different. And during our therapy sessions with myself and my husband, and we'd sit in her office and anytime I would dwell or start to get upset or start to cry or yell, she'd say, but once you have a new baby, you're going to feel so much better. Hmm. Things are going to be so much better. You're not even, I believed her, you know, (laughs) I don't know
1: if you want to weigh in as like the <laughs> professional. As psychologist, as a psychologist. So I don't, I don't want to be, you know, overly critical of anybody else's approach or method. It's not an approach I would take because, you know, there's there's a couple of reasons for me why why I wouldn't. That wouldn't be the way I would interact with somebody. The first and foremost is whether you know I'm not I'm not doing therapy anymore I'm in this coaching kind of field now but but even when I was a personal trainer and I'm actually going to go back and do some more personal training again because I love it so
0: hey you were yeah. so good at it
1: well thank you I loved it. it really I like I liked it better than being a psychologist but <laughs> I did I loved it but um in any of those areas like you meet the person where they are you know and if where they are happens to be a little stuck then you stay stuck with them for a little while, you know? Um, so like, that's just basics, you know, I don't know, for my approach, that's, that's like a basic fundamental kind of, you know, mantra that I have is just meet people where they are. Secondly, um, it's sort of, I, I don't know, I, I have a hard time with the idea that you can replace one life with another, that you can, even with pets, right? Like, um, when a right. pet dies, like in my in my household, when a pet dies, we don't immediately go get another one. We wait at least a month, right? to just kind of grieve that one and recognize how special that one was, and that that pet was a member of our family and that we had good times and that they had a character and a personality. And right. then then, when we go and do get a new one, the new one, I think it's more fair to the new pet as well because, it's not a replacement for the old one and we're not always comparing them. It's, it gets to start fresh with its own, you know, its own life, exactly. relationship The last reason that that would be my approach is because it seems to me that there's a very risky assumption that you'll just be able to get pregnant again and give birth to a healthy baby. I mean, what if you don't, right? What if God forbid you have another miscarriage or miscarriage or another stillbirth or, right? like. Um, it just seems risky to me to assume that, you know, you, you'd be able exactly. to. Exactly. Yeah.
0: So. Um, and even, so we did find out that the reason our baby died is because um the umbilical cord wrapped around her neck mm-hmm. and the OB that delivered her said it was something she had never seen before, wrapped around her neck five times. So there was like nothing we could have done it was it was really like um being struck by lightning yeah so they told me there was no reason why i wouldn't be able to carry a healthy pregnancy again so that's kind of what therapy focused on so like once i properly mourned Mm. for for three months you know once we agreed that it was a proper mourning period I started to go back um, to the fertility doctors and started to start, I started the process all over again, feeling that, um, you know, the older you get, the more difficult it is to conceive. So it was like, there was a big push. Um, and so like this time I, you know, in addition to seeing like the, the traditional, um fertility docs, I actually started to do some non-traditional kind of, so I started to see an acupuncturist. And what was amazing is that um, this particular Mimi Baker, like the empathy, um, the sessions were actually better for me than, than going to therapy. They were like more therapeutic, more like I just, I was getting a lot more work done in the sessions with the acupuncturist, than with the, um, then with the therapist, and you know I did some other non-traditional things, um, but there was a lot of, um, like mind-body. So I was doing a lot of things, um, just to make my body healthier and to make like a mind-body connection, and things were, were starting to align. So, you know, I had IVF and I became pregnant with twins mm. so it was a scary pregnancy because number one it, um multiples and those are um a little bit high risk and I was high risk because I had troubled pregnancies before so I spent a lot of that pregnancy in the hospital on bed rest and it wasn't you know it wasn't a fun pregnancy because I was terrified every single day that something you know bad would happen but You know um i finally had them um you know i i gave birth to them via c-section they came like maybe two days earlier than they were supposed to come um they were like four and a half and five pounds lily and bella and and it was great and so like that was supposed to be my my happy ending right Mm -hmm. so news flash new children do not replace old children and if you put trauma, like in a box, um, it's just going to get dredged up. It's just going to get manifested at some other point. Right. So it, it's still there if you didn't address it. So, you know, being a mom of twins, there was a lot of stuff that kept me busy, you know, feeding them, caring for them every, you know, around the it clock. Hurts. Yeah. Yeah. But there were things that were warning signs that I, I just didn't, like, I just being terrified that this is so awesome, they're going to get taken away from me. Something bad is going to happen to them in their sleep. So there were a lot of nights where I would just stay awake in their room and just watch them sleep because I was terrified that something bad was going to happen and I, I just busied myself with doing so many things so as not to address what probably should have been addressed. And I think they were, they were just about a year old and I started to get physical symptoms. Like I have IBS and I just like my stomach was in pain all the time. I was getting headaches and I was just crying and and like my emotions were just all over the place. And I um, I started to see a new therapist and I remember like our first session, she was like, holy shit. You're like, you're in crisis. This is like, we, <laughs> we have to like unpack a lot of stuff, but I promise if you're, if you're honest with me and if you, if you, if you do the work, you can get past it. And it, and it all started with, I had to retell everything that happened losing Lena and she just like stared at me didn't flinch like it was shocking or like my misfortune would rub off on her and that was that was the start of it and there was you know there were sessions every week and every week there would be like a box of tissues in her office and I would just unload and in between sessions you know um there would there would be a lot of journaling and um The anger was causing a lot of distance in my relationship with my husband, Hal, you know, because I guess I, I was feeling stuck. I didn't know if he was stuck and I just, you know, um, I don't even know if there's like a name for it, but it was just, I was feeling like distance, distanced from him and just kind of stopped talking, you know, um, my therapist had to like she was like kind of getting me to talk to him more about it and it turned out like we had a lot of the same feelings we just weren't doing like a great job um, communicating and then we did a lot of work with just being able to stay in the moment rather than thinking 20 steps ahead what if what if what if right and I remember, I, I don't even know if you remember this. I can't remember what band it was that um that the two of us went to see. It was like a long drive and we wound up after like the concert. It had to be like one in the morning, two in the morning. And we stopped at some place like on Rutgers campus. um, Like one of the places that has like those big, big subs that like they put Everything on a sub roll <laughs> were like now it would give me arm cramps if I tried to eat like a fat cat. It was like yeah, everything yeah. and ketchup and mayo on a sub that no human should really yeah, be yeah. eating, yeah. you know. And I remember we're sitting there, the two of us, and you like you looked up and you're like, you know what, it doesn't get better than this. And this is like, this is before everything happened to me and I'm like, I don't, I don't get it but I had an aha at the set where she's like, living the moment. Like if, if you get a happy moment, like you seize it with both hands, you, you acknowledge it and you appreciate it.
1: So, so I was actually, I've been sort of in the side of my mind, hanging on to something you said in the very beginning, cause I wanted to circle back and I was looking for a good opportunity to do that. And this is perfect. When you, it makes me a little bit sad and I do this too. I try not to. Um, I'm more aware of it now, so I'm able to maneuver around it sometimes, but it makes me very sad that we, many of us, grew up with such sort of punitive mindsets, right, that, like, you said that when you sat at your desk pregnant and at work and you felt like everything, my life is perfect, it's the way it is, right, and then something bad happened, and You thought, well, maybe this is retribution for having felt that my life was perfect.
0: Weird, right?
1: Well, it's not weird. It's it's pretty common, right? And I and I think I I mean I don't know for a fact, but I think some of that just comes from like, you know, probably you know immigrant cultures that came here from oppression and had nothing and felt like everything was stacked against them and got passed down from generation to generation. But but what what I wanted to circle back, like when you sat at your desk in that moment with Lena kicking away in your belly and thought my life is perfect, at that moment it was. Like the fact that it took a very tragic turn later doesn't erase the perfection of that moment, right? It doesn't undo it. And and one of the very, very heavily researched and supported ideas is that the difference between people who are generally happy and people who are generally not, is if, if you look at the things that happen to them in their lives and their circumstances, some individuals may have it better or worse, but if you use a large population of people, generally speaking, there's no difference in people's circumstances versus the happy versus the sad, right? They, everybody has some things that happen to them that are cool and some everybody has probably more than that, things that happen to them that are not cool, right? The difference is the happy people in those periods of time between you know between shit hitting the fan (laughs) right they're grateful for what goes on in between those periods of time so they can have happy times they can go on vacations they can do nice things they can fall in love they can build families they can and they recognize it and they're grateful for it in the moment the people who are generally unhappy is in between hardships all they're doing is anticipating the next hardship and they don't ever want to be happy because they're afraid the other shoe is going to drop. And it's exactly. like, yeah. And it's like, I got news for you. Here's my crystal ball. The other shoe is going to drop. Like no <laughs> doubt it will happen. Right. It's what you do on those times in between.
0: I, I don't know if you remember, I think it was like a couple of months ago, we were on a zoom call, Hal and I, and you and Melissa and, you know, like we, we do like our zoom calls because unfortunately, like right now we don't have the luxury where we can just drive to each other's homes. We, you know, airplane right away. And, you know, I had just bought a new car and my, and I was like so excited and some other things in our life were very exciting. And I remember we were talking and I just started crying and I'm like, I'm. I'm afraid. Like something bad is going to happen now. And Melissa's like, "Yeah, it sounds like PTSD." What the, you know? And I'm like, "Yes, okay. I'm just going to take a step back,
1: yeah. um,
0: and you know, something good happened. And you know what? Like so far, Knockwood, like nothing bad happened after right. that. And eventually, it will, but not today.
1: Yeah. If you continue to wake up every morning and breathe in and out, sooner or later, shit's going to happen.
0: Exactly. And right. um, and I think community. Yeah. The right community, like not just any, but the right community plays into it. Right. Because when I was really trying to heal from, like, I feel like all of the things that I did to heal from, from the trauma, other than going to my first therapist, were like really therapeutic. Mm-hmm. So, um, friends of mine have a gym about an, a boxing gym about an hour away, um, from where I live. And um, I started to go there to train again, um, Vic and Stephanie. And I remember just telling Vic, I'm like, things are really difficult for me right now. So if you could just train me. So when I'm done, I don't have a thought in my head. That would be great. And he's like, okay. (laughs) And I remember like sitting in Stephanie's office with her and like telling her what happened and like just saying, I really need this as part of my healing. And she looked at me, she's like, yeah, something very similar happened to me when I was young. And I'm like, are you kidding me? But you look so normal. (laughs) And I remember thinking like, I was at a point where I didn't know if I'd ever have another happy thought in my head. And here was somebody who was like, basically living her best life in spite of, like going through something. So it's having that community and,
1: I think what a lot of people don't recognize and and it's, you know, I mean, I'm not going to judge, you know, like privacy, right? There's a time and a place to share things and a time and place to keep things to yourself. And and that's fine. But when you say she seems so normal, I, I actually suspect that if you were ever, I don't even know if this person exists, but if you were ever to meet somebody in their 30s or 40s, who had never really faced adversity, who had never really had a major kind of struggle, I think they would, by just by nature, like without even knowing their history, I think you'd know right away that there was something abnormal about them, right? I think what appears normal is that everybody's gone through some shit.
0: Exactly. And, and so, and, uh, yeah. Go ahead, I'm sorry.
1: No, I was just gonna say like, like, when you say she seems so normal, she seemed normal because she's had this kind of, you know, this kind of adversity to overcome. I think somebody who didn't have that would seem very bizarre to us.
0: I, you know, I guess like when I say normal, like, like every day I woke up and just felt like I could just break out into tears at every moment, at any moment. Right. And here she was living and smiling and laughing and enjoying her life and, you know, working on her business, right.
1: You know,
0: um, and, Like, it's interesting. So I have encountered like a couple, very rarely people who haven't really faced any adversity by the time they hit their thirties or forties, there is a certain lack of empathy. And it's just, it's not, it's not. So a friend of mine um, that I worked with a long time ago, but we kept a really good relationship. Lisa, I remember she lost her sister in a tragic drunk driving accident when, you know, she was only 21 when she had this horrible thing happen. Um, And I remember like two weeks after, you know, everything happening with Lena, like we were talking and she was the only person that would mention Lena by name. Like everybody else addressed it as like, well, what happened to you? Like, and she was just very lena she died you buried her you know and i i thought it was it was actually comforting that right like she took the power away from it by just naming it because it happened
1: yeah i i I think here's another thing my experience as a therapist and and i too you know i mean i've lived through N- not what you've so lived, much not, not what you've lived through but um and it's funny just not funny but coincidental i guess um when you say that she had lena had the umbilical cord around her neck i was born that way the umbilical cord around my neck oh my god not breathing when i was born he
0: did not know that
1: and my son johan was not breathing when he was born he had the umbilical cord around his neck wow so yeah but but you know um you know i lost my my mother when i was very young i was 7 when my mother died and so like that was you know be, and i and i the only reason I, I say that i was 7 is because at my age now to say i lost my mother it's like well yeah people my age lose their parents but i was 7 when
0: my mother died so it was very no,
1: my mother was 34 so that's
0: she, traumatic right. for a child to to lose their mother right. it's traumatic
1: and And so I think, right. And I think what happened is is those experiences do make us a little more comfortable talking to people. But then when I became a psychologist and I was working as a therapist, one of the dynamics I found, and I don't know that it's universally true, but it's sort of a guideline for me. Um, When I talk to people about grief and about death, about suicide attempts, about rape, about anything that they've lived through, I call it what it is. And and the idea, generally, I I think unanimously, feedback I've gotten is that people prefer that. And I think the main reason that they prefer it is because if I euphemize it, right, if I'm asking somebody if they're suicidal, and instead of saying, hey, are you thinking about killing yourself? I say, you're not thinking about doing something drastic, are you? Or are you thinking about harming yourself in some way, or, right? I think it sends the message to them that I'm uncomfortable with the conversation, that I can't handle it. And so now instead of me taking care of them, they've got to take care of me by dancing around it with me. Right. Right. Whereas if I just cut to it and say it, there might be a little initial shock of like, "Ooh, wasn't expecting to hear that. But then it's like, OK, I don't have to take care of this person. They can handle the discussion. Right. Um, and it's
0: so important when you're grieving or when you're getting past a trauma, you really need to focus on getting past it yourself and not having to tiptoe around other people's feelings.
1: So you don't upset them, right, yeah. Yeah. Right, and that's part of the right community, right, is being surrounded by people who can have real talk with you, yeah.
0: You know, and I'm I'm lucky. I mean, I think before, like at this time in my life, it was, you know, I've had a, a couple of close girlfriends but um, never really being able to make a lot of connections with, with different types of people. But I, I feel like one of the things that I've, I've gained as a result of this is that the connections that I make are, um, I, I can't explain it. They're, they're really authentic connections. And my community is, um, actually makes me better. Yeah, if that makes any any sense.
1: No, it, it does. And, and by the way, I think the concert we were coming back from was um, was
0: docking
1: oh. <laughs> white snake at Lehigh University.
0: I almost spit out my coffee. Yes. And that was that was that was fantastic. we were coming back from,
1: we coming back from Lehigh and we stopped at Rutgers. Yeah,
0: it was a long it was a long uh, drive. And I think we were in your Wrangler. And um, and that was that was before you know we started dragging Hal to concerts with us when he when he didn't realize that you know um it would be a fun thing. But um I a great concert, a lot of laughs and I um I miss those times. That's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> but I you know I can't stress community enough. And having the right community, right? Um, so, I mean, I've had the same best friends, oh my God, for so many years. And I've been lucky that we've, you know, she's had adversity, I've had adversity. Sometimes my husband used to call her like my wife right. because we were just so like attached and now her life is blossoming in beautiful ways and I'm doing okay and but she's still my best friend. And even though like she never experienced that kind of a loss or that kind of a, like she was just so kind and empathetic. And, you know, one of the few people I could talk to or be around during that time, it's, you know, and I don't even know if this is a thing, but I still like, I still have triggers. Like I'm uncomfortable around pregnant people. I don't really love going to baby showers but I do if I have to with the understanding that once I get home, like I need to like have a glass of wine and take a nap and just chill by myself because it, it takes a lot of energy and like the triggers are still there, but I, you know, I deal with it a little bit better now.
1: Right. And So, so, right. And so that's, I mean, that's an important piece and that's part of the reason I do this podcast is because I want to, um, illustrate for people what the reality of recovery looks like after trauma. And and the reality is this, right? Like as as a therapist, I would rather treat trauma than almost any other condition in the world of mental health. Really? Yes, because trauma is one of the most responsive to treatment, right? It's really hard to get people to engage in treatment, but once they do engage, most people don't want to talk about it, they don't want to deal with it, they don't want, and so it's it can be really hard to sort of grease the rails and get them into the process. But once they're in the process, virtually everyone gets better. And I can't say that of things like depression or anxiety or addiction or other things that people come to mental health for. So so I like working with trauma because virtually everyone improves. It's it's very responsive to treatment, however there's, we can't unring a bell, right? What happened in your history, (laughs) happened in your history, you know?
0: That was Steven Tyler, right? (laughs) Steven (laughs) Tyler,
1: call me out, I'm stealing his lines. (laughs) So what happened in your history happened in your history, right? And so a trigger, like the definition of a trigger is a stimulus in the present that elicits a response from the past. Right. So a baby shower is a stimulus in the present and it elicits an old response. What healing looks like is whether or not those responses govern you or whether you manage them. Right. It's not that they go away. Once trauma's trio, he once trauma is healed, it's not that you're just good to go and nothing upsets you. You never have another nightmare right. or another thought. You never, no, of course not. We're always changed by our experiences. We're changed by our joyous experiences too. Right. It's just that instead of seeing a pregnant person and being so overwhelmed with emotion, you can't function. Right. Now you've got a handle on it and you can function. And yeah, maybe you need a rest later from it, but. It's not ruling you anymore. You're governing it. And so I think it's an important piece to put out there. And you're a a perfect example, right? I I mean, after this experience, you went on to get an MBA, right? And you have two beautiful twin daughters and, you know, and and are still in a, a loving, wonderful marriage and have a beautiful home and some struggles. Everybody has some struggles.
0: Right. I think it just, it comes down, like, I think there's like a certain resilience. Yes. when you when you have to deal with a trauma like there's and I think like that resilience was what allowed me to go back to school and get my MBA even though I was working full-time and had at the time my twins were too yeah you know but but because I went to therapy I was I was able to to do everything and 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 go back to school and start to build like, meaningful relationships with new people, so, like, I, um, the trauma definitely changed me, like, I'm, I'm not the same person I was, you know, 10 years ago, there's definitely differences, the therapy changed me, as well, and, and everything around the treatment, sure, sure changed sure. me, as well,
1: yeah, the other piece, I think it's a- really valuable to sort of note for, for other folks is you, you said several times having the right community. And, and I think that's true, but I think you're not giving yourself enough credit because it was creating the right community. And, and I'll tell you what I observed just as your friend on the outside who wasn't even living there anymore, it was just kind of through zoom or whatever, but you, so a couple of things. So when it comes to like the lady at the boxing gym, for example, right? Your willingness to open up and share, create, made her, gave her membership into that community. If you hadn't have been vulnerable, she wouldn't have shared her story with you necessarily. She wouldn't have known to and would not have been a member of your community, right? So your willingness to share and be vulnerable with people allowed the right people to say, hey, hey, I can I can be in that community too. Conversely, I also know that you have a a friend, I'm not going to use her name, but a friend that you and I both know who is a perfectly fine person. She's a sweet person and good, decent human being. We've been friends with her a long time. She was not able to have the right kind of empathy for you. And And I don't think it was a lack of trying. I just think it was a little bit of cluelessness, right? Like when you tried to interact with her she too has children and thankfully lucky for her, her children were born healthy and she just couldn't quite support you the way you needed. And so during this period, I know that you also chose to set some boundaries with her and keep a little bit of distance. I mean, you didn't necessarily cut her out of your life, but just changed, you know, like I always think of friendships as the dartboard, right? There's a couple of people in the bullseye. And then as you move out, (laughs) you know, there's There's more and more people out in the outer rings, right? Co-workers and colleagues and so on and so forth. And so she moved out a couple of rings on the dartboard because she wasn't able to to support you the way you needed in that moment. So it's not just having the community, it's actively creating it through distancing from some people, but being vulnerable and sharing with others. And, you know, you created that for yourself.
0: And like, interestingly enough, like after i did a lot of the work um the dynamic of the friendship changed again and and i imagine it was hard for her to take a step back it was hard for me to ask to take a step back and like i have to give her props like not to take it personally and to give me space to heal and then um, we have like a different like it's it's a different kind of closeness but we're you know we're we're close again but it wouldn't have been able to happen right. if like you know she wasn't able to take a step back and not get angry
1: right well I think if either one of you could get it personally right because you could take her inability to do what you need personally as well Right. No, but it, but it wasn't. Yeah. She just didn't have it. Right. She just didn't have what you needed.
0: And, and that's that's okay. And I like I often tell people if they have like a loss or if they're going through grief, most of the people are not exactly going to be able to say comforting things because you know, and 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 sometimes like they say cringeworthy things, and right. and yeah. you have to remember that it it comes from like a good place. It just yeah.
1: <laughs> the perfect example of the road to hell being paved with good intent.
0: <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> but I, um, it it's it's been interesting, and you know, I um, oh gosh, it's like sometimes like it's difficult finding the words for it, but you know, the community looks a little bit different, but. It, and, you know, and we all experience like different victories and, you know, get chopped off off, you know, chopped off at the knees kind of a thing. And what's nice is we're all, you know, we're here for each other.
1: Sure. Yeah. And, and I mean, the real value, I think, you know, I, and like you said, I think it comes from a good place. The cringe or cringeworthy responses are usually the people who want to try to help you feel better.
0: Right. <sighs> they want to put a Band-Aid on it or fix it.
1: Well, they want you to feel better. And at that moment, there is no feeling better, right? And so I think the people who end up being most valuable are those that will just sit in the suck with you.
0: Right, um, it, exactly. Um, it's, it's, the, it's not just like the wanting to put a Band-Aid on it, but, oh, I want the old Jen back. I want the, and like, there is no going back. Right. Like, no and I never. By the way, I never talk about myself in the third person because it's like cringy. But there's just like you know, we want the old person back, and you have to acknowledge there's really there's no going back, and it's not a good thing, it's not a bad thing, it's just a thing. Yep,
1: yep. That's like I said, we we're all changed by our experiences. I mean, if you had had an amazing experience, right? The the trip to Europe changed you.
0: Anyway. Yeah. You know
1: everything changes you and so i mean that that there's certain schools of thought that call that the that would say that that's the definition of learning the definition of learning is change by virtue of experience and
0: so this is true
1: right the interesting thing for me with trauma in the area where i really like to help people is you know, it's for, I mean, a lot of people, like lots of people experience trauma and don't end up with PTSD or whatever, right? A lot of people experience trauma and come out, okay, veterans, some go to war and come back fine, some don't, right? But for those who do come back with difficulties or those who experience trauma and it kind of knocks them off off their axis for a little while, there's this, this, downslope of you know what we might call ptsd of of might look like depression it might look like withdrawal it might look like hypervigilance or or like you know just struggling suffering right symptoms and and therapy is great like i said i you know i've been a therapist for the past decade but therapy tends to get you back to like symptom free Right. And that's cool. Like symptom free is good. We don't want to suffer. But here's another reason why I like working with trauma survivors more than, say, other mental health issues is. One of the things that occurs with trauma is what they call post-traumatic growth. And what that means is that people who are recovering from their trauma and this doesn't happen 100 percent of the time. Although we're starting to figure out how to help facilitate it. When it was first discovered, it was like serendipity. Some people experienced it, some people didn't. But what we're finding is that as people recover from their trauma, if they can learn to make meaning out of what they've been through and find a way to fulfill themselves in a meaningful way through, you know, through what they've been through and and to find some way to... um, manifest meaning, they can thrive at a level much greater than they ever had before, right? They can really create this wonderful life of like just sucking the marrow, right? Out of, out of life that you don't see with other, like, you know, you never hear about people having like, you know, this is post-traumatic growth. You don't ever hear about like post-depressive joy, right? People either like once they heal from depression, they're at baseline, Right. But not with trauma. Trauma, people tend to really do exceptionally well after.
0: I, um, for me, part of it is just um, talking about it to remove the stigma. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, this happened to me. And guess what? If I talk about it to you, my misfortune is not going to rub off on you. Right. And, and if, if you've had something similar, you know, what helps, it helps someone else. Build their community. I, you know, even, you know, um, a couple of years ago when I was diagnosed with um, having the, the gene for the BRCA mutation or having, you know, a mutated BRCA gene. So I had to go through like prevent, I didn't have to, I chose to go through some preventative surgeries. And, you know, when I talk about, you know, going through a voluntary double mastectomy and reconstruction, I'm very like, I'm, very out about that just yes. to remove the stigma because it's just everybody has a thing everybody has things and we just deal with it and we move on and I I don't understand like it's it's the whole like putting those things in a box putting the box on the shelf and maybe dusting off the box once a year and thinking about it it's no. all it it's just a recipe for getting sick. No. Yeah. It's all connected. It's, you know, I,
1: right. Right. I look at it this way, right? Like I look at it this way, you and Hal own some luggage. Yes.
0: <laughs> yep. Where is it? It's in a closet.
1: Okay. Why isn't it right there with you?
0: We're not going anywhere.
1: Right. You don't need it right now. Yeah. It would be very much in the way, right? If you came back from your trip from Europe and just never unpacked the bags and just chose to carry them around everywhere, <laughs> right? It would be a real pain in the ass. And you probably would end up injured. You'd end up with shoulder problems or carpal tunnel syndrome or something, like, right? Like you just, but what you do is you come home and you unpack all those bags and you put everything away. And then you put those bags somewhere where if you need them again, you can get to them, right? You don't throw them in the trash right? You store them somewhere. If you need them again, you can get to them, but you don't carry them everywhere. And that's what healing from trauma, that's how how I think about it, right? Is like, like the old, the old experiences are still there and I can access them if I need them. But for the most part, I just don't carry it with me everywhere I go.
0: Excellent
1: point. Yeah. I, I actually really like, so it's a maybe maybe weird for a psychologist but when people talk about having baggage I actually really like that phrase I think it's a perfect metaphor for that very reason
0: and how could one like get to your like 40s without having a little baggage right
1: right it's just that's just the way the world works man the universe deals it out to everyone at some point
0: point. and I think if everybody realizes this and you know shows a little empathy. yeah. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. And, and even if empathy isn't your starting point, right? At least make curiosity your starting point. Unfortunately, we tend to start with judgment.
0: Why is that? Is it that you want to put people in a box and, you know, um, someone is this kind of a survivor or someone has a charmed life. And like, is it that like, we need to categorize people is, do we need to put people in categories?
1: So there's some evidence, there's some research that suggests, so there's a whole study of what they call heuristics, which are like shortcuts your brain takes. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, for example, like one of my favorite ones I love, it's called the, um, the actor observer heuristic. And the actor observer heuristic means that if you do something silly, right? If you slip on a banana peel, you're most likely to attribute that to the circumstances. Somebody left a banana peel on the floor, right? Whereas if somebody else, if I slip on a banana peel, you're most likely to attribute that to my character. He's so clumsy. Right? <laughs> and, and vice versa, if you do something really wonderful, if you ace an exam at school or something, you're likely to attribute that to your character. I'm so smart and I'm so wonderful. And I'm, whereas if I ace an exam, you're more likely to attribute it to um, circumstances. Oh, it must've been easy, the exam, or maybe I had a cheat sheet or, right? Wow. And so there's some evidence that these heuristics are, you know, in of, in of, Sorry
0: about that. That's
1: okay. Um, in terms of evolution, human, you know, where we are in, in modern humanity is like five minutes old, right? Like our, our bodies and brains have not evolved to match our lifestyles. And so I think um, one of the beliefs is that um, these heuristics were needed for survival because there was a time in history where if you saw somebody who didn't look like you or was wearing a different tartan than you, or had different color skin than you they were probably a threat right like if somebody who looked very different from you crossed an ocean to be where you are it's probably not friendly and so our brains learn to make these shortcuts to evaluate people very quickly and decide who is friend and foe i don't know if that's accurate or not i mean that's one of one of the theories but now we live in a world where it's really easy to go anywhere you know you hop on a plane in a couple of hours you're anywhere
0: Isn't
1: that amazing? Mm -hmm. And so, and so, we still have these tendencies to want to judge people who are different than us in some way. I think, Um, and the best we can do probably for now is recognize those judgments and replace them with curiosity. Right? I wonder if. I wonder why. I wonder, boy, that seems strange to me. I wonder what that's about. I wonder what that person's experience is like, and then. That would probably, I think, I hope, lead to more empathy.
0: Excellent point. And who would have thought, I don't know, like 18, 19 years ago, from, you know, <laughs> White Snake and and Dokken to yeah. This.
1: yeah. So many of those good shows and crazy adventures.
0: Um, I, you know, I'm kind of curious as so as a therapist and a trainer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I first, like I always understood the mind-body connection, but one of the things that really got me back into therapy um, and and acupuncture after my my daughters were born um, was that like the trauma was actually starting to manifest. In physical symptoms like splitting headaches, like awful stomach aches, like it was, like I I couldn't function. So, what do you think about, or what do you have to say about the the mind body connection? And and
1: well, so I think I think calling it a mind body connection is, um, I understand what you mean, and I think we we have to use terms, but it's a little bit simplified, right? Because on the one hand. There are, you know, like Tibetan monks who go off into a cave and meditate for years and years and years and sort of separate these relationships between mind and body to some extent or another. But, you know, I mean, if you think there can be a real mind-body separation, try pulling a brain out and seeing how it works without the body and vice versa, right? Like, of course, there's a connection. But what I would say about trauma more so than other conditions in the mental health world, and, and by the way, I'm actually of the opinion, and it's just an opinion, I don't have beta to support this, but I'm of the opinion that most mental health problems, like most anxiety, most depression, most bipolar disorder, most borderline personality disorder, if you follow the thread back far enough, you'll find trauma. I, I'm almost 100% convinced that virtually, maybe not hundred percent, but virtually all of it is related to some sort of trauma somewhere in a person's history. Um, I just think most mental health issues are less about what's wrong with us and more about what's happened to us. But trauma specifically lives in our nervous system. It lives, um, it lives in our nervous system. And so This is why a lot of the self-talk kind of therapy, a lot of the like, well, replace negative thoughts with positive thoughts, tell yourself over and over again, that it's okay. Doesn't, isn't quite as effective as some of the more somatic therapies or things like acupuncture or things like EMDR or things like, um, you know, somatic experiencing therapy. Those tend to be, you know, kind of hit home for, for a lot of trauma folks because, you know, you have a sympathetic nervous system, which is geared for survival. It amps you up, and heart rate goes up, and blood pressure goes up. And, over. and and by the way, it also does things. The sympathetic nervous system, well, so it's intended to to kick in for an emergency, and then it's intended to kick off and be replaced by a parasympathetic nervous system that lets you eat and digest and connect with other people and recover and sleep and all these kinds of things. And what happens with trauma is, um, for a variety of reasons that are beyond the scope of this podcast, but I'm probably going to put out in a course at some point coming up. um, the the trauma happens which is a bona fide emergency and so we have our sympathetic nervous system respond which is totally appropriate what ptsd is is a false alarm where we constantly feel like we're still under threat even though we're not and so our sympathetic nervous system is getting burned out just constantly on guard and awake and alert and and in order to have the energy to fight, to run, to, to engage in survival. Other things need to be shut down to conserve energy. So things like digestion get shut down, which is why people get stress-induced ulcers or IBS or things like that. It's because their digestive system is chronically offline and, and yet we still need to eat to survive and it just screws up the system, right? Same thing um, I, I suspect with like heart attacks and aneurysms, you know, one of the things that happens in the sympathetic nervous system is our body pumps out blood coagulants just in case, right? Like just in case the emergency rips you open in some way, it's better if you clot quickly. Well, if you're chronically in that state and your body's pumping out blood coagulants and they don't need to go anywhere, I imagine you get blood clots, right? Like in your heart or brain or, and so, um, so yeah, I think, what you're talking about is is incredibly intuitive and sensible and exactly right, right? This is a condition that lives in our nervous system. And so, yeah, the mind and the body connection, absolutely, 100%. You know? It, you know,
0: I, my therapist from day one, are you doing any kind of fitness? Right. When I first started seeing her, no can barely keep my head above water. So every week it was did you get back to the gym? Did you start? You know, so so now, you know, I've got you know, I'm I'm doing pilates. I'm doing things that are like a lot gentler than but that absolutely there has to be like the weightlifting component component, the pilates, like I the physical activity, it it absolutely has to be there for me to keep everything. And it's not you know, for, it's not for aesthetics. It's not, you know, for the way that I fit in my clothes or don't fit in my clothes. It's really just more about, um, keeping everything in check. So I stay out of just to keep my brain out of trouble.
1: Right. And in the last decade or so, there's been a ton of research about, um, physical movement for trauma. And so we've seen an emergence, for example, of trauma-informed yoga. Has been a big, you know, a big thing. Um, they find that trauma survivors who engage in any kind of fitness activities, uh, you know, martial arts or weightlifting or even things like theater, um, are very effective for helping people. One of the things I found fascinating was they did um, they. I, I don't know if it was a formal study or not, or if it was just anecdotal, I don't remember. But um, in one of the trauma centers, they would have kids come in and the kids like just couldn't talk. They couldn't communicate and they just were disjointed and, you know, conversation has a flow and they couldn't quite get the flow. And so they gave the kids the Swiss balls to sit on and the, the yeah. therapist sat on the Swiss ball, which is what I'm sitting on right now.
0: No and kidding. They just,
1: oh, <laughs> right, they, would just, and they would just bounce like this and they would find that after a few minutes of bouncing in rhythm together, the kids would just start talking.
0: So that's very cool.
1: Yeah. So I don't know that we understand it all really well yet. We don't understand all the mechanisms or all the whys and in a medical sort of Western medical culture, you have to understand the mechanism in order for a thing to be valid. And I get that. Like, I can appreciate that. But I'm also okay with things that don't seem to do any harm, but work. And we don't quite know why yet. So.
0: I'm sure you'll figure something
1: out. Maybe not me personally. <laughs> some people much smarter than me. <laughs> well, Jen, this has been amazing. I wanna be respectful of your time. Um, I'm so grateful that you came on though and shared your story.
0: Well, thank you for having me. It was great talking to
1: you. Yeah. Yeah. I want to like, I want to note that there are things that you've lived through. Um, in the last decade or so that I think a lot of people would consider traumatic. Um, but that they haven't even come up because maybe compared to Lena and just based on your own resilience, like you know, doing a lot of triathlon training and being hit by a car on your bike?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, Somebody oh, yeah. Like... <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that was like, that was the life before kids, but yeah, so um, I was training on my bike, and someone blew through a stop sign, and t-boned me, so, you know, there was like a shoulder reconstruction th- surgery, and like, at the time, and, and it was, When I eventually got back on the bike my first couple rides like I was just terrified terrified, you know but um, I don't know after losing Lena that doesn't even like that doesn't even like get on the meter, you know what I mean.
1: Well. And the reason I, here's the only reason I bring it up. The only reason I bring it up and I, and because I know you so well, I have this sort of inside knowledge, right? Other, other people come on this podcast, don't get grilled, don't get the, (laughs) um, but, but the reason I bring it up is because I suspect that all of us have a threshold for traumatic experience, right? And we can tolerate some of it, and there's—it's really hard to rate what traumas are worse than other because for different people, it's different things. And
0: it's not a contest, people. And it's, it's not a contest. Not, <laughs> exactly, a, you know. Right?
1: But, but when you talk about a threshold, you automatically get into like numbers and how much, right? Like, but I—I think, like I, I think each thing we encounter. You know, if you think about a video game, like like Street Fighter, like the old fighting video games, and you have that bar of life above your head right? Each time you take a hit, it knocks down and down. And down. <laughs> And so I feel like if that's like your resilience, if that's like a resilience bar, each thing you encounter knocks a little bit off of that. right? And so I imagine being hit by the car and having those surgeries and dealing with that took some of that, took a little bit off of that resilience, right? And it might have made you more susceptible to, not that, not that Lena's death wouldn't have been traumatic, but Maybe there would have been excess, a little excess resilience if you hadn't, right? Like, and so I think what happens again is like we, we live through a certain, a bunch of things and, and either we don't deal with them because we just don't, that's our culture, that's our life and that's our, or we don't deal with them because we don't perceive a need to, they don't seem that bad, but they build up, right? They accumulate and then you get hit with something hard and you don't quite have the reserves to deal I- with.
0: Yeah, you know, I think um, when I had the surgeries for BRCA, yeah. it was it was difficult and I was having panic attacks and I I think it was I was still in that mindset of like okay, things were going great, now the other shoe is, is dropping on me. And it and there was like a lot of therapy that happened after that and I was still going through therapy and 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 doing things to to process Lena's death it was like that was that was rough and you know you make a valid point that
1: right it's like you know it's like if you were holding right like if you're if I'm holding this pen right it's it's not heavy and if you add another pen it's not heavy and if you add another pen it's not but eventually you've added a few thousand pens and it's like beyond what I can handle you know And, and then if you were to like, hand me something really heavy on top of that, I'm going to collapse.
0: Right. (laughs) But I, I think, um, and that's where the community again comes in. So they don't make you talk about it. They just
1: sit and listen
0: and be in the present with you. Yeah.
1: And I think it helped that you, I mean, the boxing thing, probably that specifically was probably the right sort of outlet and
0: after Lena died, yes. And then, like, sadly, after, like, after the mastectomy, boxing, um, because of all the muscles that were affected, like, I I couldn't box anymore. And I remember the first couple of, bo- like, I tried to, yeah. to take a couple of classes, like, after I healed from the surgery, I'm like, okay, so pectoral muscles are in a different place. Yeah. Getting a heavy bag is unpleasant. Yeah. I need to find something that's, That'll work for my new body. Like this is the new normal. It is what it is. Right.
1: Been changed by new experiences again.
0: Hello, Pilates.
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I used to love Pilates. You know, I used to work the first gym I worked at in New Jersey there had a Pilates studio in it. And man, the guy who taught there used to kick my ass. Oh, it was way harder than i expected it to
0: be it's, but it's also like um my pilates instructor keeps like the little studio kind of dark
1: yeah. it's
0: quiet yeah. so it's a great workout but it's 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 a little it's um it's just what i need it's quiet there's no outside there's no noise it's yeah it's what i need right now
1: Boy, I have time times have changed because I think 20 years ago that would have sounded awful to you.
0: It probably would have. But um, and, you know, and I still um, when I get into better shape, I look forward to running again and just and I was never by any shakes like a good runner. I was more of a cyclist, but both. like the whole process of having really, really loud metal music playing, you know, yeah. In the earbuds and, and being able to run even in the rain, like I I miss that. So,
1: for sure, maybe in
0: a couple months we'll talk about that.
1: Sounds good. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, we did not talk about this beforehand, and I probably should have. But um, I'm wondering, I guess, if if people want to reach out to you, have questions, want to communicate with you would it be best for them maybe to shoot me a message and I'll put them in contact with you?
0: That's absolutely fine. Or, you know, they can private message me on either um, Facebook or LinkedIn or just go through you. That's fine. I'm happy. I, you know, I'm happy to talk to, you know, other women who might be newer to the whole losing a child thing. And I've, you know, I've spoken to other, you know, to other women um, who've been through that. So I'm happy to Okay. Discuss
1: any of that or you know, training after getting hit by a car. Sure. Uh, yes. So so if you want to, if you have questions or comments and you want to reach out to Jen, like I said, you can go through her socials or um if you want to, you can reach out to me. You don't have to share the question or issue with me. You can just say, hey, I wanted to get in contact with Jen and I will put you in contact. I will give out my socials. Um so down
0: below. Okay. Right there, pointing down.
1: Oh no no no! no. They're, they're <laughs> the at the end, that will have them all. But but um, but on Facebook, so we have on Facebook is um, growth and thriving with an Amber Sam LLC. Um, the Facebook communities are growth and thriving after trauma, thriving fathers, parenting after trauma, and leadership skills for survivors is a new. Yeah, I'm,
0: I'm excited for that one.
1: Thank you. Thank you. And uh, and on YouTube, um, if you prefer to li- watch the um, podcast instead of listen to it on YouTube, it's again, growth and thriving LLC growth. And then in the Ambersan thriving LLC. So I want to thank you, Jen, for your time. Thank, and you. thank everyone for listening or watching. I appreciate it so much. I know that Your time is a valuable commodity and you can use it in lots of different ways. So if you choose to invest an hour or so with me and find, I hope find some value with that, I really appreciate it. The podcast is available. You can watch episodes on YouTube. Um, It's also available as the Growth and Thriving Podcast on Google, on Apple and on Spotify. So thank you again. And this is uh, Dr. Jerry Sunshine Novak signing off just saying keep growing until you're thriving thanks